If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm grateful for the privilege of being here uh, and grateful for the service of Dr. Quarles, who I know is serving you so well. Uh, I consider Chuck a dear friend, and I'm grateful for his ministry uh, here over the last several months and in the time uh, and the days ahead. Uh, you know, this morning I want to share with you uh, about really a, a common topic, a subject that we would assume uh, is very familiar to everyone, and yet something that we oftentimes, because of that familiarity, may uh, take for granted. Uh, I heard a story this summer, uh, like many of you maybe, we spent some time at the beach and as we were there, I was reminded of a story that I'd heard about a young man who walking along a sandy beach found a, uh, a bottle. And sure enough, it was one of those uh, kind of lampish bottles. And you would guess, just like the stories go, uh, there was a genie inside when he picked it up to rub it. And the genie popped out, and the young man was so thrilled and excited, and he couldn't believe it that he had finally found what he had actually dreamed about his whole life. In fact, he told the genie, he said, I'm ready for this moment. I've actually imagined what it would be like if I ever had the chance to get three wishes. And the genie said, well, this is your day. Uh, your, your dream has come true. You do, in fact, have three wishes. And he said, well, I already know what they are. Here's the first one. I want a billion dollars in a Swiss bank account. Well, all of a sudden, the genie snaps his fingers, a bolt of lightning, and there it was, a receipt for a deposit in a Swiss bank account with the number right there and a billion dollars showing in, uh, to his credit. And so he was thrilled. He was excited. And he said, okay, what's your next wish? And he said, well, I want a bright yellow Ferrari. I've always dreamed of having a Ferrari, and that's the kind of car I want. I'd like it right now. If you could snap your fingers and make that happen, it'd be great. The genie said, your wish is my command. He snapped his fingers. There was a bolt of light and boom, there was a yellow Ferrari beside the boy, the young man. And then he said, well, what's your third wish? And he said, well, this one, I, I don't know if you're going to be able to do this, but uh, I actually would, would like for you to, to change me a little bit. And he said, uh, well, what do you mean exactly? He said, well, I'd actually like to be sweet and desirable. And I haven't always had that reputation. And the genie said, well, okay, if that's what you want, are you sure? He said, that's what I wish for. And he said, well, your wish is my command. He snapped his fingers, a bolt of lightning, and the young man turned into a box of chocolates. <laughs> well, that is not exactly what he had in mind. And we would probably never in our uh, own mind or heart uh, kind of liken prayer to a wish in a genie. But many times we actually approach it that way. We have a wish list. Uh, in some ways, we may feel like it's limited, and so we don't always want to ask for too much, so to speak. But in fact, when we have something big that we're desiring, we would voice that and expect that God is there to serve us. This wouldn't be a fair kind of characterization of what prayer really is. It certainly shouldn't be a description of how we approach it. But what, would, what should we think about when we pray? What actually happens when we pray? You see, because when we pray, we're talking to a God who is far more powerful than any genie. He's, in fact, far more personal than any genie. And he's, in fact, even more practical than any genie. But what is prayer? How does it work? And what difference does it make? 
Well, in Ephesians chapter 3, as Paul was praying for the Ephesians, we actually learn by what Paul models for us what prayer, in fact, is, how it works, and what it accomplishes. This passage is probably familiar to you. In fact, it's probably one of the most often quoted passages in people's prayers, uh, particularly in the last couple of verses we'll look at. You think, I- I've prayed this. I-, I regularly ask God to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. But how does that fit into what God has designed prayer to be in our lives, both as an individual Christian and follower of him, and also collectively as his people that is the church? Well, if you found your place there in Ephesians chapter 3, let's read together and understand what God wants us to know about what happens when we pray. The Bible says this beginning in verse 14. "For For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, God, we desire to hear you speak to us. God, I pray that we would open our hearts, that we would ready ourselves. Father, that we would give you our complete attention. Father, I pray that you would superintend superintend our time together, that you might give us a, a greater understanding of prayer, who we're praying to. God, how you respond and how this should impact our daily lives. So God, give us understanding by your word through the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, uh, I want to share with you three truths about prayer, about what happens when we pray. Three truths that you can understand about what happens when we pray. First truth I want you to see is that when we pray, we're talking to the God who listens to us. When we pray, we're talking to the God who listens to us. This is probably the most uh, common foundational understanding of what prayer is. It's simply communication, communicating to God and listening to God, right? When we pray, we're talking to a God, the God who listens to us. And as Paul begins to kind of uh, pray, he doesn't take this for granted. He wants us to understand what this communication is meant to be, who's who in the conversation and how we should then approach it. So when he describes it here in verse 14, what you begin to see is kind of a a posture that Paul brings. In other words, how does he approach prayer? That tells us a little bit about what prayer is and who is he approaching in prayer. And that tells us a little bit about how we should do it. Notice what he says there in verse 14. For this reason, there he's describing all that he said from chapters 1, 2, and 3. All of the theological truth and the rich doctrine of our salvation and what God in Christ has done for us. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. If you wanted to sum up verse 14, you would simply be able to say, well, this is describing our posture and our Father. These are the two things we have to understand here. What is it about our posture? Why does he describe, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father? 
This uh, could be, in fact, describing that Paul physically, in his cell at this point as he's writing for prison, is down on his knees, in chains, bowing before God. But even if he's not physically bowing before God, it represents the posture of his heart. And it should also mirror and reflect uh, that same posture in our hearts when we pray. So what does it mean that he bows his knees before the Father? There's a few things we would understand about this expression. One, when we pray, that we should pray from a, a posture of reverence. We should pray from a posture of reverence. Think about it. If we're approaching the king of the universe, who in all of his sovereignty and all of his majesty is able to rule and reign over all things that he in fact is created, if we're entering into his presence, it would make sense that we would do so with reverence. This is why we can't simply approach uh, prayer with some cavalier attitude. We can't approach it in, in some uh, comfortable way that is just kind of uh, us just having a, a conversation. There's a personal element to it, but it has to begin with reverence. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. I think of encounters in Scripture where people encountered the very presence of God, maybe in Isaiah 6, and there was a very humbling submission and kind of bowing down in reverence. Woe is me, for I am undone. I think of Jesus even in the garden as he bowed his head to pray. Over and over we see this same type of posture that demonstrates the reverence of God. And why is that? It's because of who God is. Think of what the psalmist said in Psalm chapter 95. He said, our God is a great God and he is the king above all gods. In his hands are the heights of the peaks of the mountains and the depths of the earth. In his hands are the, the seas because he formed them and the dry land because they belong to him and he made them also. Then listen to how the psalmist encourages us to respond. Come then, let us kneel before our maker. Let us bow before our God. The kneeling, the bowing, it symbolizes for us a, a, a reverence that we have to come to God in prayer with. But we don't just come to God from a posture of reverence. When we pray, we should pray from a posture of obedience. We should pray from a posture of obedience. See, if you're bowing before the God who is sovereignly ruling and reigning over all of creation, it then translates into your own personal submission to that sovereign God. The God, I'm not just bowing, acknowledging that you are the creator of the universe. I'm bowing to you in submission as the Lord of my life. See, there's a posture not just of reverence, but a posture of obedience, saying simply, God, I'm yours to do what you will. I make my life yours, even the, the choir special that sang that, that we would follow him no matter what the cost or what it requires. This also was modeled by Jesus, not only in the model prayer of Matthew that's recorded there in Matthew 6, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but even in Jesus surrendering himself and to say uh, in his um, great prayer in the garden there, the night before he was crucified, not my will, but your will be done. There's a submission, there is an obedience that should characterize our prayer. That when we come to God, we're first and foremost bowing to him in reverence and in obedience. But that's not all a posture of bowing our knees includes. Not only should we come with a posture of reverence and obedience, we also should pray with a posture of dependence. A posture of dependence. To bow your knees acknowledges, God, I don't have what I need to do what you've called me to do. I, in fact, am dependent and reliant on you to give me what I need to do what you have asked me and called me to do. 
You see, there's nothing that God's going to call us to do that we have the ability to do in and of our own strength or skills or gifts. No, no. There's a total dependence on God to say, God, I can't do it without your help. And too many times we we have this kind of approach of self-sufficiency in our own lives. And God wants to rid us of that in the very nature of prayers that we're bowing to him in reverence and obedience, but also in dependence. But the good news is that the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that God will, through his rich grace, provide for us all things at all times so that we may have full sufficiency in order to do every good work. God will give us what we need to do what he's called us to do. So as we come to him in prayer, we come with reverence and we come with dependence as well as obedience. And lastly, this posture of prayer involves a posture of confidence, of confidence. You see, this blend between humility and confidence recognizes that we're not confident in our own standing and our own ability or in our own right or privilege to enter into God's presence. Our confidence is in Christ and what he's done to us to open the way, to invite us in. The Bible describes what Christ has done for us doing this very thing that gives us the privilege of prayer. So, for instance, in Hebrews 4, 16, it tells us that we should therefore approach the throne of grace with confidence. Again, not in what we can do for him, but in what he's done for us. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive grace and find mercy in our time of need. Friends, when we come to God in prayer, we're, we're bowing to him. There's a posture that's involved there, one of reverence that acknowledges that he is the king. One of submission or uh, obedience that says, God, we're at your discretion, serving. One of dependence that says, God, I need you. I can't do it on my own. But there's also one of confidence that says, in what you have already done for me through Christ, God, I come to you in prayer. For this reason, I bow my knees. But it's not just our posture. Right? Who are we bowing before? The king of all the universe, certainly. But as he characterizes it here, notice the next part. He says, I bow my knees before the Father. The Father. This opens it up into a new category that God is not just some distant, all-powerful, almighty being out there somewhere ruling the universe. But he is our Father who knows us intimately. And he goes on to describe it in the next verse. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This speaks to his universal creative ownership, that he is the father of all things. And in fact, in the very next chapter, he described it uh, just that way, that he is in verse 6 of chapter 4, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He is the father of all things. And that gives us confidence because we know that our father takes care of his creation. You don't have to wonder or worry about that. You can just simply look at the sunrise that came up this morning. Or the beautiful sky, or something like a a majestic beach, or uh, any of God's creation. You can even see in yourself, even though you may not feel particularly confident in your own personal aesthetics, that God, in fact, has designed you and made you wonderfully and beautifully. And that you belong to Him, that you are part of that creation, and God cares for His creation. Jesus affirmed this in Matthew chapter 6 when he said, Look at the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and how God cares for them and nurtures them and feeds them and clothes them. In the same way, we know that God cares for everyone. He is the God of all. He is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. But it's not just that God, our Father, takes care of his creation. 
God our Father takes care of his children. God our Father takes care of his children. And here's a distinction that really makes prayer come alive. Right? That we're not just approaching God as a part of his creation. We're coming to him as, in fact, our Father, our Heavenly Father. Jesus said this is a game changer. Jesus said this is how you have to understand your relationship with God. In fact, in that model prayer we referenced a moment ago from Matthew chapter 6, how does he begin it? He addresses our Father who is in heaven. Hallowed be your name. In that same reference of him taking care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, he then asks and poses to his disciples, are you not more valuable than them? Right? Our Father cares for his children. But not everyone is automatically a child of God in this relational way. In fact, the Bible tells us in John chapter 1 that Jesus, who became flesh, clothed himself with flesh, and came to earth as the only begotten Son, right, that he was rejected. He was spurned by those he came to save. But, he says in John 1:12, as many as received him to get to them, he gave the right to become the children of God. So you become a child of God when you're adopted into his family, that by his grace you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, turning from your sin, receiving the forgiveness because of your faith in Jesus as the Savior who died in your place as your substitute to pay the price for your sin. Through your faith and his death in your place, his burial and his resurrection to give new life, he gives you new life and adopts you into God's family. But until you make that personal decision, that profession of faith, trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're part of his creation, but you're not one of his children. So when we pray, we have to recognize these two things kind of in the, the healthy, beauty, complementary nature of their concepts, that we are in fact bowing before God, our posture, but as those who are in Christ, we're coming to him as our Father. So the questions for you and I this morning begin with, are you one of God's children? Have you in fact come to that point in your life where you have confessed and recognized your sin and your need for a savior? Have you in fact, fact placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ to trust him? Have you in fact been adopted into God's family? None of that has anything to do with what you've done, what you are doing or what you will do. It has everything to do with what he's done for you in Christ. Have you trusted Jesus as your savior? And if you have, the next question is for you. How then do you approach God in prayer? Do you approach God with a, a cavalier kind of presumption that says, God, I deserve to be heard. I expect you to listen to me. And I want you to answer my prayers according to what I ask and what I want. Much like that genie in the bottle. Or do you approach God with this posture of reverence and obedience and dependence and confidence in Christ? How is it that you approach God in prayer? Here's the beauty of it. The Bible tells us that when we come to God in prayer, over and over the psalmist uses this language that's really picturesque. It says that the Lord inclines his ear to his children when they pray. In other words, he leans down and longs to hear our prayers. The psalmist in Psalm 116.2 said, Because he inclines his ear to me, I will call on him all the days of my life. We pray because we believe that God, as our Father, hears our prayers. When we pray, we're talking to a God who listens to us. Maybe this morning you would simply want to just renew your commitment to prayer. Say, God, give me a desire to pray. 
This is a beautiful thing. This is a privilege, as the great hymn says, that we often forfeit. And yet is constantly available and welcomed by God. That when we pray, we're talking to the God who listens to us. Second truth in this passage I want you to see is not only when we pray are we talking to the God who listens to us, but when we pray, we're trusting the God who loves us. When we pray, we're trusting the God who loves us. As Paul now begins his prayer, right? In verse 14 and 15, he's simply describing the act of prayer. I'm bowing my knees before the Father who is ruling and reigning over all things. But as we get into the next verse, he begins to appeal and offer the prayer. One thing I'll point out as we kind of begin to walk through this is that there's, there's three really strands of this prayer. And they're easily recognized in your, your Bible by this word may. Right? That he may grant you, that he may do this. I'll point him out to you. Look there in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened. In verse 17, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. And in verse 18, he says, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. Those three may speak to a faith and a trust, a belief that God can answer our prayers. So when he's praying, he's praying from faith. We are trusting. When we pray, we're trusting the God who loves us. Prayer is, in fact, an act of faith. Believing that God is real and believing that he listens to us. But this prayer, as he begins to say, also believes that God can do something about it. That he can respond. That he's not impotent. In other words, some way limited in terms of his power. Or not indifferent. That he, in some way, doesn't really care. Oh no, we're praying. We're trusting the God who loves us. Praying really is all about faith. I've heard faith described this way, that it's not simply knowing that God can, but believing that he will. That's trust. That's faith. Who are we trusting in? Well, it's the God who loves us. And basically this, this, this prayer that he offers in the next few verses that we read here kind of describes what prayer affords us. That when we pray, when we come into God's presence, he welcomes us and gives us access to his attributes, access to all that he has. He says, all that I have available is yours. Come and, and, and partake and participate and commune with me and have access to these things. And as he describes what these things are, it gives us a greater understanding of who we're trusting in and the access that we have when we come to him in prayer. First thing we have access to as he describes it here is that we have access to God's incomparable power. When we pray, we have access to God's incomparable power. That there is nothing, no one that compares or competes with our God. Look at what he says there in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory. Now you just think there, according to the abundance, that which cannot be exhausted of his glory, all that he is. With all that he is and all that he has, it cannot be exhausted. And according to those riches, Paul prays that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. That God would strengthen us with power. This incomparable power, this supernatural power. Now it's specifically talking about our physical ability to, to maybe lift a car or do supernatural feats. Notice what he describes, that we would be strengthened with power through his spirit. In other words, it's by the divine presence of God's spirit dwelling within us. Watch this, in your inner being. He goes on later to, to mention in uh, verse 18 that we may have strength this incomparable power that God then affords to us. When we come to God in prayer, we have this. 
In, in Ephesians, he, he regularly mentions this power and he describes it in a way that gives us a sense of just how great and mighty this is. In fact, if you want to flip back to chapter 1, you can simply just look at this verse and recognize how he describes God's power in the book of Ephesians. And how it affords to us. This is uh, in Paul's first prayer for the Ephesians earlier in the letter. As he's praying, uh, you can pick up there maybe in verse 18 as he's praying. He says, I pray that the God uh, would uh, uh, give eyes or open the eyes of your hearts that they would be enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now watch this verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? Do you hear the superlatives there? The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. His might always has some modifier that elevates it above anything and everything else. It's not just might, it's his great might. And it's the same might, according to verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This incomparable, immeasurable greatness of his power, this great power is what he then, at the end of the letter, will tell, to, tell them to be strengthened by. In Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. When we pray, we have access to his incomparable power. But notice where he says that we would be strengthened. Strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. What is that? What is your inner being? Maybe we can think of it like this. It involves our heart, our mind, and our will. Our passions, our thoughts, or our control, and our decisions. Our heart, our mind, and our will. This would include everything from our spiritual strength, our spiritual fortitude, the comfort internally that he offers us. All of this is being strengthened by that in our inner being. So think about our affections, what you care about, what you love, that God would strengthen those affections, that he would inflame that which is within us to give us a greater passion for him and what he loves. That our emotions, that as we struggle emotionally, and listen, we all struggle emotionally, whether it's discouragement, whether it's grief or sorrow, whether it's despair, whatever it may be, that he would strengthen you in your emotion, your inner being. So he strengthens our affections, he strengthens our inner being and our emotions, our passions, but also our resolve. I need God's strength. I don't know about you. I need God's strength in order to be able to say no to the things I need to say no to. And to be able to say yes to the things I need to say yes to. Remember, this is that posture of dependence. But when we come to him, he says, I'm going to pray that you would be strengthened with this immeasurable power by his Holy Spirit who lives in you, in your inner being, to give you the ability to obey and follow him. This strengthened in our inner being. The incomparable power. We have access to this when we pray. Notice what else we have access to. We don't just have access to his incomparable power. We have access to his indwelling presence. His indwelling presence. God is not distant, but yet he is right there with us. You know, it's funny. Um, it's easy to be in a crowded room and feel alone. But it's also understandable that when you're in a room alone, you would really feel alone. And oftentimes when we pray, we're by ourselves, whether that be in what Jesus referred to in Matthew 6 as kind of a prayer closet 
or whether it's just in a car or in a moment to ourselves laying in bed going to sleep at night or when we wake up in the morning or whenever it may be that we're just alone with God in our thoughts and prayers it's easy to actually feel like you're alone God are you really there are my prayers just words bouncing off the ceiling God I feel so alone but it's actually in those moments of prayer that we have the greatest assurance that we're never alone Because when we pray, we have access to his indwelling presence, that which is there through our faith in Christ and our salvation. In verse 16, he referenced the the spirit that dwells within us. But now look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ would dwell within you. Now the Bible tells us that that when we come to faith in Christ, that Christ uh, by his spirit uh, takes up residence in our life. That Jesus is, in fact, by his spirit dwelling within us. And that can't be removed. It's not like Jesus comes and goes. Jesus takes up permanent residence in our lives. But as he describes it here, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is speaking of, of kind of what Jesus described in John 15. That abide in me and I will abide in you. This abiding in his presence and knowing that God, you're dwelling within me. And therefore, your life, my life, is being conformed to that power and presence in my life. That uh, much like we read in in the responsive reading earlier in Galatians 2.20, that we have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer we who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. And here, when we pray, we have access to his indwelling presence, his abiding presence. And when we pray, God is all about changing us and conforming us to the likeness of the presence of Jesus within us. When we come to God in prayer, it's really not about him changing things. It's about him changing us. And when we sense and understand that we're entering into his presence and that his presence dwells within us, then it really does become all about communing with him, offering our greatest cares and concerns, casting them on him, knowing him because he cares for us. Our deepest and darkest fears as well as our secrets, those things that no one else knows about us, that we can not just abide in him, but we can confide in him, sharing those deepest concerns, maybe even those regrets. And as we share those things, that that God would then mold us into the likeness of the one who dwells within us, that through prayer he would conform us to the likeness of Jesus. Romans 8 also makes this connection. Right, that when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes for us. And that God works all of these things through the groanings too deep for words, that God's Spirit is, is communicating for us that which we can't express in words. But then when we do, He'll work all, together, all things together for those who are called according to His purpose, for good. Do you know what it says in those next verses? That the ones He called and justified, He did so so that they might be conformed to the likeness of His Son. You see, prayer conforms us to the likeness of Jesus. It gives us access to his abiding presence and begins to change us. So it gives us access, not just to his incomparable power and his abiding presence. God also grants us access to his inconceivable love. The love which abounds and exceeds all that we could even understand. He describes this love in a couple of ways and it really does become the, uh, the basis of the relationship we have, the nature of our prayers, that you being rooted and grounded in love in verse 17. 
that you being rooted and grounded, love, God's love for you that's accessed through prayer becomes the stabilizing force in your life. God, if I know, if I'm sure, if I'm convinced that you love me, then I don't have to worry about these things. I don't have to wonder about these things. You will take care of them. This rooted and grounded in love, that we've been rescued and saved, adopted and transformed, but now we're planted in that love, that that love then blossoms, and that he prays that we might have strength to comprehend. Now watch this, this word comprehend, that you would be able to understand, and it's not unique to you, it's with all the saints, to comprehend with all the saints, what is the, and then he describes the four dimensions, right? The breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ. So that you could comprehend and to know the love, but then he makes this curious phrase at the end there of that verse, this surpasses knowledge. That you, that you would comprehend and know what you can't know. Isn't that strange? Well, what he's saying is, listen, you can't exhaustively know it, but you can fully experience it. You can experience this love and understand just how far it goes how wide it is, how long it is, how high it is, and how deep it is. Great preacher and reformer John Calvin refers to this as heavenly, sorry, it was actually Spurgeon, who referred to this as heavenly geometry, right? He, he spans, his love spans every direction, and trying to calculate it is impossible. Someone once wondered, how in fact could you be reminded of just how wide and just how long and just how high and just how deep is the love that God has for you and me? The picture is in fact modeled there in the cross. Just how wide, just how long, just how high, just how deep is the love that God has for you? It's epitomized in the cross. It's seen most evident and most clearly in the cross of Jesus. This is the love that he has for you. How wide is it? Well, the Bible says as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins for us, from us. How high is it? Well, the Bible says as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the love that God has for us. How long is it? It endures for all of eternity. That There's nothing that will ever outrun the love of God. And how deep is it? It stretched all the way from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus to come to us, to rescue us, to save us, that we might then have access to him. Who can exhaust this incomprehensible love? When you think about God's love and to know this, you think of, of man, kind of those things that God wants to wow us with from time to time, but we so often just dismiss as, well, yep, God loves me. Oh, would we never take for granted the love of God? In these verses, you see that in verse 17, his love is in fact immovable, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. In verse 18, we see that his love is immeasurable. You can't measure in any or all directions. It's incomprehensible. It's beyond knowledge. But that when we experience this, we may be filled to all the fullness of God. His incomparable power, his indwelling presence, his immeasurable, inconceivable love fills our hearts, that we may overflow with praise. But his love, in fact, is also inescapable. You you can't get out of its presence. The psalmist asked, where can I go to escape your presence? But Paul in Romans said, how then, in fact, what then, who then could separate us from the love of God? 
In Romans 8, 38 and 39, he answers that in fact, nothing or no one. Right? I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present or things to come, or powers, or height, or depth, or any other created thing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, how great is his love for you and me. And when we have access, when we, have, uh, we come to God in prayer, we're trusting the God who loves us. Maybe you ought to consider this morning and for us to reflect a little bit, are we in fact taking advantage of the privilege and the access we have to God, to his attributes, his incomparable power? His indwelling presence and his inconceivable love. Maybe you ought to also consider, are you trusting in God's love when you pray? Or are you prone to doubt God's love? He's already proven and assured us of it, but Jesus gave a real tangible explanation in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, when he said, if, if you then, being sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give all good things to those who ask him? One commentator responded this way and recounted it. When we pray, we should remember that the love of God wants the best for us. The wisdom of God knows what's best for us. And the power of God can accomplish what's best for us. When we pray, we're trusting the God who loves us. Third truth, finally this morning, not only when we pray are we talking to the God who listens to us and trusting the God who loves us, but when we pray, we're thanking the God who leads us. We're thanking the God who leads us. You know, these verses up until this point, Paul has described how he's coming to God in prayer. He has then voiced and shared the nature of that prayer, which gives us understanding into what prayer actually does and how God is working. But all of this kind of leads the apostle to then rejoice and celebrate, to kind of uh, explode with praise, if you will. It leads him to thanksgiving. And it's the same that it should do for us, that when we pray, we're ultimately thanking God, thanking the God who leads us. In these last two verses, in verse 20 and 21, it's really funny that when you hear Paul describe this, he's actually expecting God to answer the prayers that he's just offered. In other words, he's going to now live with expectancy and anticipation that God you will hear, you will, you've heard my prayers, but you will answer these prayers. And God, I'm just going to claim the answer in advance because of who you are and because I can trust you. I'm going to claim that answer and I'm going to go ahead and thank you. I'm going to thank you and then allow you to lead us forward. So when we pray, we're thanking the God who leads us. And in verse 20 and 21, he describes exactly what those answered prayers look like. How to live with kind of that answered prayer expectancy. Look at verse 20, 20 with me. Now to him, right now it's the doxology, if you will. Now to him who is able, speaking of what we've already described, the Father who is over all these things, he's able to do far more abundantly. The, the, I mean, they, the superlatives just stack on themselves far more abundantly than all that we could even ask or think or imagine. God can do all these things. What it tells us that answered prayer demonstrates God's infinite ability. And Paul is presuming not upon God, but that God will in fact answer according to his word and his promises. And when he does, he has this confidence that there will be answered prayer. And those answered prayers will demonstrate God's infinite ability beyond all that we could ask or imagine. Do you believe that nothing is impossible with God? I do too. 
Nothing is impossible with God. There's no lost person so far away from God that God can't reach and save him. The Bible says the arm of the Lord is not so short that he can't save anyone. There's no sickness that's so great and desperate that God can't rescue someone from the very clutches of death. There's no turmoil or division that God can't reconcile. He reconciled sinful man to a holy God. God can do that. There, there's, there's no brokenness in your, your marriage or in a relationship that God can't overcome and heal and restore. There's no circumstances in your life that are so big that God can't overcome them. He can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or imagine. And by the way, because he can do so many of those great things, it doesn't minimize the little daily struggles we have. It means that those, how much more so can he accomplish these? These aren't a nuisance to him or bother to him. No, in fact, he is the righteous judge who welcomes us to continually, persistently come to him in prayer. God can do all these things. And answered prayer demonstrates God's infinite ability. But I want you to watch something in verse 20 that oftentimes, even when we quote it in our prayers that we miss or overlook, how is he going to do these great and mighty miraculous things according to the power that works within us? And we talked about the power. But I want you to see that God intends that you would be involved in the answer to your prayers. In other words, that when you pray, God do this, that he doesn't want to say, well, you just sit back on the sideline and watch and I'm going to perform for you. He wants to involve you. That God's going to do these things supernatural, exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or imagine, according to the power that works through us, in us. In other words, he invites us to be part of the solution. God wants to do great things through us. And when he does that, it actually will demonstrate that God used a broken vessel like you and me to accomplish something supernatural and unexplainable, which means that in fact, he will get the glory because nobody will mistake who it was that did it. It was him. It was him and only him. Therefore, now to him who is able to do these things. Answered prayer demonstrates God's infinite ability. Maybe you're here today and you've been praying for years over something. Or maybe there's just a specific prayer even now in this moment and season in life that you know is a big burden on your heart. You just say, God, I don't know. I don't, are you going to answer? When are you going to answer? And, and that may have been, again, for months or years or what may be now in the immediate of your own heart and life. Maybe I encourage you to use an acronym as a reminder, an acronym that maybe you're familiar with, but you can push through with prayer. Push through with prayer. Push. Pray until something happens. Just keep praying. Just keep praying. Don't give up in hope because answered prayer will demonstrate God's infinite ability. But it doesn't just demonstrate God's infinite ability. Answered prayer displays God's infinite glory. It is, in fact, him who gets the credit for what happens when he answers prayer. Now to him, it repeats there in verse 21. So it's to him, and he describes what he can do. Verse 21, who gets the credit and the glory? To him be the glory in the church. That's right, it's through his saints, it's through his people that God's going to do great things. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. God answers prayer for his glory. And it always has in mind our good. But we can't put our good in front of his glory. Because when we do, 
it, it kind of assumes that we know what's best for us and we don't always know what's best for us. It assumes that we know what's best to be accomplished and we don't always know what needs to be accomplished. Right? That we have to put, God, your glory, that which reflects you, that which esteems you, that which honors you. By the way, which is what the posture was that we came to prayer to begin with. In reverence, God, to your glory. And when we submit to God's glory, we can trust that it will be for our good. Because God works it that way. And we can follow him that way. Because when we pray, we're thanking to God. In a posture of belief and confidence and trust, God, that you will answer. We're thanking the God who then leads us on. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Would you bow with me? This morning, maybe you're here and just the concept of being in a relationship with God is eye-opening to you. Maybe that's from a new place in your heart, or maybe it's because you assumed you had a relationship with God, but that's just because you believed God is real. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never actually asked God to forgive you of your sin, to adopt you into his family, and to save you. And this morning, as much as we want to talk about prayer, it begins by having that relationship with God through Christ and through Christ alone. And if you're here this morning and you have doubts or wonder, you're not sure, you want to know more about that, in just a moment during our hymn of response, you can come forward or even after at the end of the service, you'll be able to do that. Or others will be available to you to pray with you, to talk with you, to give you assurance of your salvation or the opportunity to be saved. Perhaps you're here this morning and you realize that prayer is in fact a privilege but if you were being honest, you'd have to admit that you often forfeit that privilege. That you don't take advantage of what God offers us and affords us. The access to all that he has. But this morning, you simply want to renew your commitment to be a person of prayer. Devoted to prayer. Coming to God in reverence. In obedience. In dependence with confidence. Maybe this morning you're struggling because there are some things in your life, in your heart that are overwhelming. Maybe they've been a long season or maybe it's a new season, but you needed to be reminded that God can in fact do all things, that he can in fact do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or imagine. And it's going to be according to that power that works within us through his spirit that dwells in us, that we might be changed to his likeness. And that we don't ever have to doubt his love that stretches far beyond in every direction what we could see. Would you be reminded this morning of God's great love for you? That you might renew that prayer, that need, that concern, that desire, trusting in him. Heavenly Father, we come even at this moment bowing our hearts before you submitting ourselves to you and asking God that you would do according to your will for your glory that which is far above all that we could ask or imagine. Help us, O oh God, to be reminded of your great love for us that we might renew ourselves in prayer coming to you, depending on you 
trusting you to lead us forward. We love you. Thank you for your great love for us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.